Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Emerging Treatment Strategies for the Management of Patients with Chronic Cough, is provided by the American Thoracic Society and AKH, and is supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation, a subsidiary of Merck and Company Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello. Uh, on behalf of the American Thoracic Society in partnership with AKH, I want to welcome you to this webinar on the management of patients with chronic cough. Uh, my name is Garth Garrison. I'm a pulmonologist at the University of Vermont here in beautiful Burlington, Vermont, where I also direct our pulmonary and critical care fellowship training program. I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Prema Menon. Dr. Menon, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thanks. Um, hi, everyone. I just want to thank everyone as well for joining today. My name is Prema Menon. I'm also pulmonary and critical care at UVM, um, and I'm the director of our interstitial lung disease. Um, I'll head, give it back to you, Garth. Thank you. So today we'll be addressing chronic cough and current recommendations for management. Specifically, we will be addressing the prevalence, unmet clinical needs, and impact of chronic cough in patients who do not find relief from recommended management strategies, analyzing cl clinical trial data and mechanisms of action of emerging therapies for patients with refractory chronic cough, and summarizing the, the current guidelines and emerging treatment strategies for management of these patients. I'll start off with just a couple of definitions. Cough can be described as acute, subacute, or chronic. Acute cough is defined as a cough lasting three or fewer weeks, whereas a subacute cough can last between three and eight weeks. For the purposes of this discussion, we will be defining chronic cough as a cough lasting greater than eight weeks, although a cough greater than 12 months is used in many uh, chronic cough-related uh, clinical trials. Chronic refractory cough is a cough that lasts more than eight weeks despite a thorough evaluation and therapeutic trial. For this discussion today, we will not be specifically discussing chronic cough related to structurally abnormal lungs, such as with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or bronchiectasis. That said, some of these chronic cough management strategies may be considered in those populations. As many of you can attest, chronic cough is a very common complaint. That appears to be true not just in North America and the United States, but really throughout the world. How common is chronic cough? Well, the data is somewhat hard to evaluate given different definitions and populations studied, but it's estimated that the worldwide prevalence of chronic cough may be as much as 10%. There are interesting data from Canada just published recently demonstrating a prevalence of 15% in adults over age 45. It's more common in smokers, but present in 10.8% uh, of never smokers. That's an amazingly high number. It appears more prevalent in Europe and North America overall when compared to countries in Africa and Asia. In 2014, a group called the International Cough Registry, which is a collection of cough specialty clinics, published retrospective data from referred patients to describe the demographics of chronic cough. In this group of patients, two out of three were women, and the most common age at presentation was uh, between the fifth and sixth decades. In China, cough may present earlier, being more common between the third and fourth decades. In the aforementioned Canadian study, chronic cough was actually more common in men with an increasing incidence throughout the decades. Obesity appeared to be associated with more complaints of cough in that population. So 
Moving um, to assessing uh, cough symptoms, I think it's really important to understand that as prevalent, as Dr. Garrison mentioned, as prevalent as cough is, it's really important to understand um, how we're going to quantify or really understand how severe cough is. Um, we know that people with chronic cough have reduced quality of life. Um, quality of life is really reduced primarily because of a variety of different things. Um, there's a significant impact on social interactions. For example, patients may not feel comfortable singing in their choir or in their chorus group. They may feel uncomfortable being in public while coughing. And um, this leads to a significant sense of isolation and resultant um, depressive symptoms. Additionally, things like um, um, uh, uh, Sorry, stress incontinence and chronic chest pain that can be associated with chronic cough um, are also factors that really increase the risk of developing um, depression and anxiety. And these symptoms can be so bothersome that they're really the reason that they come, um, patients come for evaluation. We also know that adequate treatment of cough symptoms um, actually improve quality of life. Um, so how a patient perceives their cough, their intensity, um, the disruptiveness of, is really key to understanding how we should be approaching treatment. Um, this makes it really important to be able to assess um, the impact of cough on patients. And so I'm going to take some time to talk about some tools that are available to assess the actual impact of cough. I think we all know that these tools exist but may not be as familiar with them. Um, but just in general, there are two broad categories of subjective assessments, those that focus on cough severity and those that are more widely addressed, things like um, cough and the, assess uh, the effects of cough on general health status. So the most commonly used um, cough symptom focused tool is the Lester questionnaire. So this is a validated tool with um, high internal consistency and repeatability of scores. It's very responsive to successful treatment of cough. So what it is, is it's basically a 19 item um, a questionnaire um, that addresses physical, social, and psychological domain. So each um, domain or each item will have a seven-point Likert scale, ranging from one being all of the time to seven, none of the time, and it really reviews symptoms over two weeks. As an example, in the last two weeks, have you felt embarrassed by your coughing? Um, in the last two weeks, two weeks, have you felt frustrated um, or have you gotten uh, more hoarse? Um, and so, it's basically the um, minimally the minimal clinically important difference in this scale between any time we evaluate it is, a, is is about one one and a half to two points. Um, so the LCQ, which is the um, way I'm going to refer to the Lester cough questionnaire from now on, the LCQ has been widely translated and validated for acute, subacute, and chronic cough, and is actually a really good tool to use um, for comparative purposes, both clinically and in um, in clinical trials. Um, another tool that is available it basically focuses on cough symptoms um, only, and this is the visual um, analog scale. Because of its simplicity, uh, like many of these visual scales, it's probably the most used in clinics for um, immediate assessments. It's quite easy to use. You, it's basically a zero to 100 millimeter linear scale. Um, and again, this has been tested. Um, uh, and higher scores indicate higher severity. So when a patient comes in, you ask them to kind of mark on this scale how disturbing it is, their cough symptom is. And a minimally, 
a minimal clinically important difference in this case would be about a 17 millimeter difference between the biggest um, back, uh, kind of issue with the, the visual analog scale is that there really is very limited data on reliability um, and validity of this. But again, for ease of use, it's definitely one that can be um, used in clinic quite uh, quickly. So there are, again, a variety of other tools that we can use to assess cough, um, particularly related to quality of life. So the one, a couple that I'm going to talk about in specific, I think many of us know about the short form um, health survey and St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, but there is a cough-specific quality of life questionnaire um, that comprises 28 items in six domains. So it's about takes about as long as doing the Lester que uh, cough questionnaire, um, but it has a lot more to do with um, quality of life. So it looks at physical complaints, extreme physical complaints, emotional well-being, personal safety, fears, and functional abilities. Um, in this case, each item is rated with a four-point Likert scale um, with a maximum total of 112 points with a um, difference in score about 22 points being clinically significant. So again, in addition to these, um, we've got the, the usual quality of life questionnaires, but I think um, that the cough severity diaries are also kind of the next best used tool. Um, so the cough severity diary, for example, is a seven item outcome measure with an 11 point Likert scale. And so it's said to be as easily used as the visual acuity scale, um, but the cough kind of cough severity diary questionnaire as such, though it's short, has really been tested um, and validated when used with a diary of daily symptoms. Um, and so, you know, I think figuring out which is the right combination for your own clinical practice or which you feel makes the best um, sense for use in your clinic is the most important. But I do think it's of utmost importance to really understand how to assess that um, and document that formally. So we're going to touch on the pathophysiology of chronic cough, and I think this helps to understand where we might be going with, with therapies and how current therapies might uh, uh, might be working. Uh, it's an amazing complex process with a number of different inputs and modulators. Speaking broadly, upper airway disease, lower airway disease, and esophageal dysfunction are most commonly thought of as inciting pathologies. As you can see, there's a lot of potential for interplay be uh, between these, um, and these inputs interact with the nervous system to ultimately manifest as cough. The cough reflex is initiated through stimulation of the vagus nerve afferents. As you will uh, recall, the vagus nerve, also known as cranial nerve 10, arises from the medulla. The bronchopulmonary branches of the vagus nerve arise in the inferior and superior vasal, uh, vagal ganglia, also known as the nodose and jugular ganglia, which are located in the jugular foramen. Cough related to vagus nerve afferents include C fibers and cough receptors. C fibers are unmyelinated fibers that exist in the airway and vascular walls, as well as the pulmonary interstitium. These fibers are sensitive to a number of chemical uh, stimuli, and the mechanisms of stimulation are area of significant interest in the development of novel therapies. Note that these receptors do not respond to mechanical stimulation. Two important receptors for stimulation of cough are the transient receptor potential uh, venyloid 1, or TRPV1, and the transient receptor potential enchiron 1, or TPRA1. Interestingly, these receptors are also important for nociception, with TPRV1 having a role in perception of heat and TPRA1 having a, result, uh, having a role in the perception of pain, itch, and cold. 
Radikinin appears to sensitize airways to coffee interactions with TPRV1 and TPRA1 signaling. Capsaicin and acid are other potent stimulators of TPRV1. As you'll know, capsaicin uh, is responsible for the sensation of spice in food. Ozone and isothiocyanate are triggers for TPRA1 signaling. Isothiocyanate is responsible for the pungent taste of wasabi. Bradykinin pathway antagonism, as well as TPRV1 and TPRA1 inhibitors, are potential targets for future cough suppression therapy. Another really important receptor for cough is the purinergic P2X3 receptor. P2X receptors are cation channels that, are that respond to extracellular ATP. ATP-induced signaling can lead to pain, inflammation, and, pertinent to us, cough. Stimulation of cough occurs via ATP activation of the P2X3 receptor. P2X3 inhibition uh, as a cough suppressant may actually be available soon. Cough receptors are myelinated fibers found in the extrapulmonary airways, including the larynx, trachea, and bronchi. These are mechanoreceptors and are not sensitive to chemical stimuli uh, aside from acid. Primarily, these result in cough from direct mechanical stimulation of the large airways. Ultimately, the cough sensory input signals interact with the nucleus tractus solitarius. While the stimulation of these afferents can lead to cough via reflex pathways, the cough reflex, uh, the cough reflex has the potential for significant central modulation. The central nervous system can play a minor role, can be inhibitory, or can even trigger cough without stimulation. Indeed, most people perceive an urge to cough when stimulation occurs, proving uh, some opportunity to suppress the cough voluntarily. This central modulation presents an avenue for therapy using speech pathology interventions. Speech pathology interventions uh, definitely can uh, help patients with chronic cough. It's worth noting that patients with chronic refractory cough often present with other laryngeal complaints, including vocal cord dysfunction and muscle tension dysphonia, which may also benefit from the expertise of a speech pathologist. A speech pathology intervention for chronic cough consists of at least four components, education, psychologic support, cough suppression strategies, and reduction of irritants. During these sessions, patients are edu educated about their condition and pathophysiology, provided information on the importance of adherence to and identifying emotional barriers. They're taught laryngeal reposturing techniques and other ways to deflect the urge to cough sensation. They're instructed on ways to avoid irritants like alcohol and uh, reflux and to reduce certain phonotraumatic behaviors. Although typically small, multiple studies have shown that speech pathology interventions can lead to statistically significant improvements in quality of life for patients with chronic cough. It may also improve cough severity, cough frequency, and urge to cough sensation. Speech pathology evaluation should be considered for patients with chronic cough, particularly those with refractory symptoms despite medical therapy. There is certainly room for studying the timing, patient selection, and therapy dosings in the future. So I'd like to go from there and talk a little bit about um, cough hypersensitivity syndrome. Um, so uh, it's been hypothesized that some, if not potentially all cases of chronic refractory cough um, may, be, may belong to a specific phenotype, um, namely the um, hypersensitivity of the cough reflex. Um, so the term cough hypersensitivity syndrome, or CHS, um, relates to the specific entity characterized by an enhanced cough reflex. Um, the concept of cough hypersensitivity really uh, helps explain how cough can continue even when an irritant exposure is decreased. Um, it also helps to explain how chronic cough could arise from a variety of different processes. Um, and it's hypothesized that neuropathic mechanisms involving um, 
transient potential, um, transient receptor potential nociceptors, similar to the ones that Dr. Garrison was talking about earlier in the pathophysiology, or not similar, but those, um, are actually considered to play an important role and are, act, are probably central in the determination of um, cough hypersensitivity syndrome. Um, so addressing really or understanding and addressing this hypersensitivity will uh, may help to reduce chronic cough, particularly in patients who the underlying disorder has been treated, um, but there remains um, a significant cough. So um, there's been a, a variety of different therapies that I'll discuss in a minute um, that have been look, uh, looked at for cough hypersensitivity syndrome. Um, Historically, there were two tests uh, to assess cough sensitivity. Um, both of these tests were essentially single breath inhalations of either capsaicin or citric acid. Um, and so when we're looking at um, cough hypersensitive syndrome, specifically uh, research surrounding that, these are usually the um, tests that are used for that. The capsaicin challenge uh, is one in which there's an inhalation of a capsaicin aerosol in doubling concentrations using single breath method um, with kind of a, a compressed air-driven nebulizer, and it's a very controlled breath-activated um, nebulizer. So cough is essentially counted for 10 seconds after each dose inhalation. Um, and this is very similar for citric acid inhalation tests, except obviously the, the dosages would vary. Um, and what we look at is what is the lowest concentration that causes two coughs um, and five coughs, and we kind of and we kind of compare and look to see uh, whether that would be a positive test or not. Now, the issue with these tests, although they're I think really interesting and are have been very helpful in kind of getting some understanding about this hypersensitivity. Um, syndrome, the issue is they really have not been shown to be specific um, or useful from a diagnostic uh, perspective on an individual level. So again, when we're trying to do studies and group people, it might be useful, um, but more often than not, we may get negative tests in people who still have that. So it's really important uh, more from a historical standpoint and to consider these neuropathic mechanisms uh, as a potential for treatment for cough hypersensitivity, even again, when usual causes for cough, COPD, asthma, and reflux seem to be under good control. Um, so I'm going to just talk briefly about a couple of studies that have been looked at related to this cough hypersensitivity syndrome. So opiates um, have long been considered for a therapy of suppression in cough, but there have really been very few uh, trial data to support this rec these recommendations. In 2007, um, Alan Morris um, Maurice and his uh, colleagues actually conducted a small prospective trial looking at 27 patients, which unfortunately many of our trials that we look at with cough patients are actually quite small, but 27 patients um, with chronic cough that were randomized to low-dose morphine versus um, placebo. And there was a significant improvement in the Lester um, cough questionnaire between the two groups of about 3.2 points. And if you remember before, one and a half to two points is considered clinically significant. And a reduction by 40% overall in cough scores. Um, and so uh, at the end of that study, a dose uh, increase crossover was available. And what they found was that there's no difference between people who responded to five milligrams um, They didn't necessarily respond better to 10 milligrams. But interestingly, um, non-responders, initial non-responders actually did respond to the higher dose of morphine. Um, and also, I think what's interesting is between these groups, there was actually no difference between the citric acid challenge um, 
between both responders and non-responders. So um, another uh, kind of uh, drug, given the hypothesis of, the hypothesis of increased sensitivity, um, and in an effort to really reduce that central sensitization, uh, we've tried looking at the neuromodulator gabapentin. Um, and in this study, uh, the by Nicole Ryan and colleagues, there are 62 subjects who were randomly assigned to gabapentin versus placebo. Gabapentin significantly improved cough-specific um, quality of life in 74% of subjects compared to placebo. There were about 31% of subjects um, on the gabapentin arm that had significant side effects, specifically nausea and fatigue. So kind of choosing um, the patient population is, is important. Um, and then lastly, I'll just uh, briefly talk about uh, another neuromodulator uh, with, which was used for cough because of its relatively low side effect profile, which is amitriptyline. Um, it's been considered for treatment of co co uh, chronic cough. Essentially, this study looked at in post-viral patients, um, thinking about a post-viral vagal um, uh, neuropathy. So in this study, 28 patients were randomized to amitriptyline versus codeine um, and guafenosine combination uh, at a dose of 10 milligrams of amitriptyline per day. Uh, a majority of the patients in the amitriptyline arm, actually 12 out of 15, achieved a complete response um, in, uh, on the 10 milligram uh, compared to no patients who achieved a complete response on the codeine guafenosin group. Obviously, this is a pretty small trial and um, only in two arms with no placebo, so not really sure what we can make of that, but we'll talk about that later as we get into um, our overall guidelines. So I'd like to now take a few minutes to talk about how chronic cough starts. Ultimately, whatever uh, pathology leads to um, to cough uh, may develop into a chronic hypersen uh, cough hypersensitivity syndrome. Um, an inciting disease process can most often be identified in chronic cough as much as 95% of the time. Uh, I'd like to take some time now to discuss a few of these classic cough phenotypes. These are important considerations when approaching a patient with chronic cough. Classically, the most commonly described cough phenotypes are asthma, non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis, gastroesophageal reflux, and upper airway cough syndrome. Other syndromes include iatrogenic and somatic cough syndromes. Remember, too, that structural lung disease can present as chronic cough, so ensure that your evaluation screens for these conditions. Asthma is the most likely etiology to, uh, to be diagnosed as an inciting event during thorough evaluation of chronic cough. This may be seen with or without typical allergic symptoms. Uh, both traditional flow variable asthma and cough variant asthma may be seen. Classically, these patients identify triggers for cough that may include allergens or irritants like temperature change. Diagnostic options to identify asthma include bronchodilator testing, bronchoprovocation testing, and possible allergy evaluation. Identifying eosinophilic inflammation in this setting may help to guide therapy. Non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis is another common diagnosis identified during the evaluation of chronic cough. Similar to asthma, patients may describe irritants leading to cough, but spirometric testing and bronchoprovocation testing should be normal. Clues to this diagnosis may include elevated exhaled nitric oxide testing or presence of pseudo eosinophils if you have the capacity to send those. On occasion, bronchoscopy and bronchial wash may, re may reveal the presence of eosinophils, allowing the diagnosis to be made.
Both asthma and non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis are best treated with inhaled corticosteroids. Indeed, the high incidence of these two conditions during cough evaluation may justify empiric therapy uh, if, uh, if there are no clues based on history or physical exam for an alternate diagnosis. In 2004, Chaudhurian colleagues showed that a trial of fluticasone was associated with a significant benefit in reducing cough severity. Uh, this involved a trial of 120 patients randomized to fluticasone for 14 days versus placebo. Exhaled nitric oxide, sputum eosinophils, and total IgE were predictors of successful trials in this study. The role of inhaled corticosteroids in non-eosinophilic disease is questionable currently. Now, gastroesophageal reflux is also commonly cited as a cause of chronic cough. Uh, however, the role of GERD in, the, uh, in chronic cough is actually a bit controversial. In reflux, clearly acid can contribute to cough via multiple mechanisms. However, non-acid reflux may be, also, uh, may be equally as important. Reflux does not need uh, to even reach the larynx to stimulate cough, uh, as stimulation of the upper esophagus may lead to vagus stimulation leading to cough. There is some thought that esophagolaryngeal reflux in patients with esophageal dysfunction uh, may also uh, cause chronic cough in addition to gastroesophageal reflux. However, in patients with chronic cough due to reflux, reflux symptoms really should be noted. Empiric therapy uh, for acid reflux, absent reflux symptoms, is not likely to be successful. Aside uh, from a thorough history, an esophagram may help to identify esophageal dysfunction, and ambulatory uh, pH probe testing may help to clarify the role of acid-related reflux treatment. This recommendation is backed up by several studies, including one by, uh, by Fruki in 2011, where 50 adults with chronic cough were uh, randomized to empiric therapy with ezomeprazole versus placebo. In the primary outcome of cough severity, there was no change in cough scores at eight weeks. In those with dyspepsia, there was a trend towards improvement, but it wasn't statistically, uh, wasn't statistically significant. Also in 2011, Shaheen and colleagues randomized 40 patients without reflux symptoms to high-dose ezomeprazole at 40 milligrams twice daily. Again, no observable, uh, observable benefit was noted in, uh, on the, um, the cough, um, cough questionnaires. Another commonly cited cause of chronic cough is upper airway cough syndrome. This is defined as persistent rhinosinusitis in conjunction with chronic cough. Note that the classic sensation of postnasal drip is not required for diagnosis of this condition. Uh, however, it's not really clear that there's a mechanism for which this can cause chronic cough. Perhaps there's mechanical stimulation by thick mucus. Um, clearly, throat clearing occurs, but in terms of, um, of ongoing chronic cough, uh, there's not uh, a clear signal that would be anticipated to trigger the cough reflex on an ongoing basis. The unified airway hypothesis suggests that the upper airway disease may be mirroring conditions in the lower airway, and therefore cough and rhinosinusitis may be occurring concurrently rather than by causation. Remember that medications too, uh, most classically ACE inhibitors, can cause chronic cough. Chronic cough is noted in up to 15% of patients taking an ACE inhibitor. This is thought to be due to accumulation of bradykinin. Drug withdrawal is typically the only effective therapy. 
During an evaluation, be sure to screen for ACE inhibitor use. Other medications may cause cough through unclear or perhaps idiosyncratic mechanisms. Attention to uh, any recent changes in medications prior to onset of cough is definitely warranted. Psychogenic cough and habitual cough have been retermed somatic cough and tick cough. Somatic cough should only be diagnosed following a thorough evaluation of alternate causes and a failure of multiple treatment courses, and somatic cough diagnoses should meet DSM criteria for somatic disorders. Post-infectious cough uh, can be seen as a subacute or sometimes a chronic cough. This is classically due to pertussis, but other infections can certainly initiate this uh, disorder, including influenza and mycoplasma. This usually occurs in the absence of eosinophilic inflammation and often resolves with time. Oral corticosteroids can be useful uh, to reduce the, the cough severity. All right, so, um, oh. so just as we move next, I'm sorry, this title says morphine and chronic cough, but what we're going to be talking about um, is actually kind of how to take all of that information that we just talked about, how to, you know, kind of how bad cough is, how can we assess it, and the variety of different treatments and data that's available, and kind of look at our guidelines and, and put them together and try to think about how it might actually change our um, practice. So. What I'm going to look at is going to be our chest guidelines as well as um, um, ERS guidelines. And so fortunately, there's a, quite a bit of overlap. So as I go through this, I won't necessarily go through everything twice. But um, I would like to just kind of go through um, what the guidelines um, look like. So with our chest uh, most recent guidelines from 2018, um, I'm going to go through this entire schema, but just an idea of, of how we should be looking at things. So, you know, if there's a chronic cough, the first thing obviously to do is to take a history um, and then really thinking about which direction we need to go to. And there's clearly at the bottom of this a very nice area that says some red flags. And so identifying those red flags early in the history um, is going to be um, very important. So basic basic things, which would be, you know, initial evaluation, get a thorough history and physical, see if there is anything that you can clearly identify um, as a potential source of the um, of cough. Uh, usually a chest x-ray is in that initial uh, evaluation, especially through chest, um, and I, I, ideally identifying those red flags. So what are the red flags? And basically red flags are anything that might identify a um, much more um, kind of life-limiting um, or life-threatening process that's going on that needs more urgent workup. So things like hemoptysis, risk uh, factors for cancer or kind of things that trigger your um, thought for cancer, um, nocturnal dyspnea associated with cough, uh, worsening hoarseness with cough, um, especially if that's kind of the first symptom is hoarseness over cough, things like systemic symptoms that might make you think of um, underlying malignancies or infections, um, and and kind of the list goes on from there. And again, you know, one of the things to remember is anything that might, and an abnormal x-ray, for example, tell us about um, underlying known um, lung diseases like interstitial lung diseases that might cause cough um, that are not necessarily part of what we're talking about today. Um, and so the first step would be initial management, which is, uh, as Dr. Garrison mentioned, really looking through basic things that could cause um, cough and stopping those offending medications. In the chest guidelines, it's 
you know, stop the medications and then reevaluate in four to six weeks. Uh, if there is some clear symptom, um, say, um, you know, reflux that's very symptomatic and you treat them and reevaluate in four to six weeks. Again, thinking about the um, more common causes of cough that Dr. Garrison mentioned, um, doing specific evaluation for these, um, for the upper airway cough uh, syndrome, thinking about sinus imaging, um, asthma, thinking about doing formal bronchoprovocation studies, allergy testing if needed, um, et cetera. And then once you've decided kind of what those things might be, considering initiating that therapy right away, um, and again, doing about a four to six week trial. Um, this is looking at um, starting things like antihistamines uh, and decongestants for asthma, um, then uh, inhaled corticosteroids, as Dr. Um, Garrison mentioned, for asthma and um, non-allergic eosinophilic disease, um, and then treatment for reflux. And then thinking if these diseases still exist and there's refractory cases, um, kind of before you move towards um, that chronic hypersensitivity syndrome of cough, really thinking about is there more that needs to be done? So if you have you treat GERD, but they still have GERD symptoms, thinking about things like being much more aggressive with the testing, 24-hour uh, testing, swallow function. If you have sinus disease and you've treated them, but they still have symptoms, really thinking if there's other things that need to happen, surgical interventions um, and, and such as that. So really thinking, is the underlying diagnosis well controlled? Um, and then the only other thing that I would just mention is, um, you know, that it's it's not in the 2018 guidelines, but have been in previous chest guidelines and, and remain something that we should talk about is, what if you have unexplained chronic cough? So you've treated all of the symptoms seem to be improved from the asthma, from the reflux, um, from any of those things that I talked about, then it's really considering other reasons. So consider referral, again, similar to what Dr. Um, Garrison mentioned for multimodality speech therapy, um, considering therapeutic trials for gabapentin um, or low-dose morphine, and then remembering two things that um, I just wanted to reiterate that Dr. Garrison talked about, which is really avoid just using inhaled corticosteroids um, for cough unless there's real evidence of bronchial hyperresponsiveness or eosinophilia or something that makes you think that they might respond. And the same would go with avoid trials of um, acid suppression unless there's active um, symptoms of reflux. So getting through to um, the ERS guidelines, um, just making sure I'm okay on time. So um, I think, again, there's a lot of overlap, so I won't go specifically into too much detail um, about all of these things, but I think it's important to, to recognize that, you know, a couple of things that are pointed out in the ERS guidelines are in addition to the history um, and physical exam, but really doing some assessment of cough scoring so that we have some documentation and understanding of response to therapy. Um, and then again, most of the most of the therapies that we're talking about are are essentially the same. I will say that in the ERS guidelines, uh, there is um, more conversation about a longer trial on all of the therapies. So rather than six weeks, maybe you know eight to twelve weeks. Um, and again, initial evaluation, uh, thorough history and physical, doing some form of cough assessment, um, identifying other risk factors. And then very similar to, to what the CHEST guidelines say, um, additional uh, evaluation as needed. Again, I won't go into all of this, but you can see that very similar, thank, thank goodness, um, somewhat overlapping um, 
trials with the big or recommendations with the big difference being three months um, therapy is what's considered before we consider um, a failure of therapy or something of that sort. And that at least um, three months before we also attempt tapering medications. So in the ERS guidelines, they have some very specific um, questions that I think many of us often think of, um, and I'll just review some of them, which are, you know, should a chest CT be routinely performed on chronic cough patients with normal chest radiograph and physical examination? And the recommendation is that a CT chest is not recommended um, for uh, initial evaluation of chronic cough, and especially if even during the evaluation, if chest x-ray and physical exam are normal. Obviously, depending on what we find with lung function testing um, and other uh, things, we can then move forward with a CAT scan if needed. And then should pheno or blood eosinophils be used to predict treatment uh, response to corticosteroids or um, anti-leukotrienes in chronic cough? And you know, unfortunately, there's there's no real evidence that this is going to guide clinical management, um, and so no um, uh, recommendation for following that specifically. Next, um, should anti-asthmatic drugs be used to treat patients with chronic cough? Um, interestingly, there is a suggestion in the ERS guidelines that a short two to four week trial of ICS would be suggested. Um, and um, a short trial of leukotriene modifier might be suggested, as well as a, a combination um, inhaled corticosteroid and uh, long-acting bronchodilator could be considered, but it would be a short uh, period to see if there's any improvement in cough. Um, should drugs with promotility activity, such as reflux inhibitors um, and macrolides, be used um, to help treat patients with chronic cough, and their recommendations are there's really no evidence um, for use for either of those without symptoms, um, but you could uh, consider one month a trial of macrolide therapy was recommended based on uh, some data in patients who have a diagnosis of chronic bronchitis um, and, and subsequent cough. Um, and then which neuromodulatory agents would be used here, again, um, thinking about uh, pregabalin, uh, gabapentin, tricyclics, and opiates, their recommendation was a trial of morphine, um, the low to moderate to medium dosing um, could be would be suggested for refractory cough. A trial of um, one of the neuromodulators could also be suggested. And, um, you know, one of the things that have been talked about uh, in the chest, kind of the chest data about amitriptyline is that potentially when we're thinking about uh, other drugs, potentially considering um, what other associated um, comorbidities there are. So for example, patients who have had chronic cough for a long time and might have significant depression um, or fatigue and really making sure that you're using amitriptyline or gabapentin accordingly. Um, and then the last question that I'll, I'll just discuss here will be, you know, should non-pharmacologic therapy or cough control therapy be used to treat patients uh, with chronic cough? And again, for refractory cough where there is no clear um, uh, etiology and or uh, everything has been treated and other than cough, there's really no other symptom left of the underlying disease, a trial of cough control therapy with speech pathology um, is certainly suggested based on the ERS um, guidelines. Okay, it's a whirlwind tour through a lot of guidelines. Um, so we, we've talked so far about 
the current evidence, emerging trends, and, and, and those guidelines in, in the management evaluation of chronic cough. Now I'd like to look towards the future um, to uh, talk about additional medical therapies that may be available. Uh, this is a graphic highlighting some of the potential therapies under development. You can see that there are multiple P2X3 antagonists um, that are being evaluated uh, by several different companies. Um, given the prevalence of chronic cough and the impact on quality of life, this is certainly an area of significant investigation. To focus for a minute on the P2X3 inhibitors, uh, Jefepixent has been the most rigorously studied to date. Uh, you may have heard of this drug, which is currently under review at the FDA with an application received in March and a decision uh, on approval due somewhere around December 2021. Jefepixent has been studied in two completed phase three trials that were called COF1 and COF2. Prior to these trials, phase two studies showed significant reduced, significantly reduced cough at a 600 milligram dose, but essentially all patients experienced loss of taste. At lower doses, this side effect was improved, uh, but the trade-off was lower effic uh, efficacy of cough suppression. COF1 and COF2 looked at 15 milligram and 45 milligram doses. These studies included uh, 1,907 patients with chronic cough. In COF1, subjects were treated for 12 weeks and 24 weeks in COF2. There was a notable placebo response, uh, but Jefepixin at 45 milligrams was associated with improvement in cough severity. However, over 50% of patients experienced taste-related side effects at that dose. There are other P2X3 antagonists under development. Jefepixent does cross-antagonize P2X2 and is proposed that more specific P2X3 inhibition will lead to cough improvement without alterations in taste. One interesting small uh, study published in 2011 described the, the utility of capsaicin desensitization. This involved taking 24 patients with unexplained chronic cough and 15 controls randomized to oral capsaicin for four weeks versus placebo. In the primary outcome of improvement uh, in capsaicin cough sensitivity, uh, there was a significant decrease uh, uh, in both the chronic cough and healthy controls in terms of their cough sensitivity. So just sort of interesting, and remember that the capsaicin receptor is one of the main triggers for uh, chronic cough. There are a whole host of other targets under development. Remember, the, the mechanisms for cough are very complicated, and there's a lot of different inputs. So GABA receptor antagonists are being evaluated, as are sodium channel blockade, um, sodium chromoglycate, uh, TRPA1 uh, inhibition, TRPV1 inhibition, uh, TRPM8 antagonism. Um, these are all in various stages of development, uh, with primarily preclinical and very, very limited uh, clinical data supporting their use. Um, but we may see clinical trials involving these uh, compounds uh, in the future. So just to uh, bring us back around, uh, I'd like to leave you with these thoughts. Uh, chronic cough is common and impairs quality of life. The development of chronic cough is complex and may result from several different insults leading to a syndrome of hypersensitivity. Most cases can ultimately be attributed to an underlying diagnosis. Asthma and non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis, reflux, and upper airway cough syndrome are the most common diagnoses identified during evaluation, with asthma and non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis being the most common. 
For patients with chronic refractory cough, treatment with speech pathology interventions and neuromodulatory therapies uh, can be considered. Uh, novel therapies for cough are under development. Remember, we have multiple uh, high-quality guidelines from CHEST and ERS that can be used to help you um, develop an evaluation and management plan for your patients. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by the American Thoracic Society and AKH and is supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation, a subsidiary of Merck and Company Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.